We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right he was the most popular man in the Australian Imperial Forces by the end of the First World War. He'd been amongst the first men to land Gallipoli, and he was one of the last to leave those dreadful shores. He served on the bloody Western Front until late in 1917. 1917 was the worst year of the war for the Australians. 55,000 casualties, 38,000 at Passchendaele alone. He was always amongst the worst of the fighting. The need of his men for him to stay with them was great, but the man was shattered by the end of 1917 and ordered back to Australia. Then he was shattered at having to leave them. When he got home, the government organised for him to go around Australia to bring news of the war and because he was an absolute legend to so many people. When he was touring, people travelled hundreds of miles to where he was going to be to see him, or better still, to hear him speak. Most importantly of all, for so many tragic people, to feel the touch of his precious hands. There was a kind of magic about his hands. It wasn't magic like in some goofy TV series. It was a tragic magic that drew many, many Australians irresistibly to him like a magnet. His hands were often left raw and bleeding at the end of the day. Why? This is a man whose story you need to hear from me because nobody else is telling it, and it should be told. This man is one of the greatest Australians, and at the same time, nothing. William Mackenzie was born in a thatched cottage in Bigar, Lanarkshire, Scotland, in 1869, he was a bright student, but he was always landing himself in fights. Sometimes they even got him into trouble with the police. He left school when he was 12 and worked on his father's farm. His family decided to emigrate to Australia. The voyage was not uneventful, with William getting into frequent fights, as always, usually with some of the Irish immigrants on board. His family landed at Brisbane. At 15, he got a job on a cattle station. He became an accomplished rider and developed a lasting love for the Australian bush. If you've ever been out back, at least for me, that isn't hard to do. At the age of 17, he went to work on the sugar plantation that his father had bought near Bundaberg. He worked as an overseer. The workers he was in charge of were a mix of Chinese and Kanakas. The men quickly and easily grew to liking him. William was a natural leader. Some people are and some people aren't, but at that age he was also likely going to be still a follower in a lot of things that he did. Peer pressure is something that most people can't resist, ever. If you want people to like you, you've got to be like them. That's how it works. Back in Scotland, when he was growing up, his parents were both practising Christians, Presbyterians. He was brought up as one too. 
but hanging around with the hard men of the Australian outback and on country stations and plantations in those days was going to be a strain on the strongest willed person to stay on the straight and narrow. The strain was too much for Bill, who wandered away from his parents' faith and became an atheist. William's free time was now spent hanging around in the pubs of Bundaberg, and he was still getting into fights. It doesn't seem clear when he got the nickname of Fighting Mac. My guess would be around about this time, but he certainly earned it. He lived up to it for the rest of his life, although in different ways when the Great War arrived, and he volunteered to serve. But more about that in another program. For some reason, Fighting Mac couldn't have told you why, but one night he found himself at an open-air meeting of that great institution, the Salvation Army. Maybe it had something to do with his upbringing. Maybe it had a lot more to do with his two miscreant mates who had dragged him along with them so that he found himself with them there. Both men had been hardened drinkers, fighters, and spoke the foulest language. But here at this meeting, in front of his eyes, he learned to his shock that they'd been saved and had accepted Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Pretty hard to believe, thought Fighting Mac. Maybe it was that encounter again with the religion of his childhood, but more likely it was the death of his youngest brother that most disturbed him. An experience like that often gets you thinking about your own mortality. How long have you got to live? Life in those days was a lot shorter than it is today. There were lots of diseases that killed people like flies. Lots of things doctors didn't know. In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you hear a lot about the prophets, the men that God spoke to directly, giving them a message that he wanted them to deliver to whoever. Mostly it was the Jews, but not always. For fighting Mac, that happened to him. God spoke to him at around 4 a.m. one morning, not inside his head, but loud and clear. This wasn't the last time that God, through his angels, spoke to Mac and saved his life, time after time. Now you might be laughing when I mention angels, but let me tell you something about angels that you won't believe. But it's true. A poll conducted by the Essential Research Organisation in Australia in 2017 found that 40% of Australians believe in angels. Pope Francis in 2014 said that he certainly believed in angels. He said, The doctrine of an angel with us is not fantasticist. No, it's a reality. According to church tradition, we all have an angel with us who protects us and helps us understand things. How often have we heard, I should do this, I should not do this. That's not right. Be careful. So often. It is the voice of our travelling companion. Abraham Lincoln once told his fellow citizens to listen to the better angel of our nature. During the time when Jesus was near to breaking point in the Garden of Gethsemane, not too many hours from the time when he would suffer the unsufferable agony of death by crucifixion, he asked God if there was another way he could achieve his purpose without having to suffer that horrific death. At that moment, Luke tells us, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Even Christ, as a man, needed the comfort of an angel. And so it was, as I said, that at 4am one morning, Fighting Mac was spoken to by his 
angel. This wouldn't be the last time. In the nearly two and a half years of fighting Mac's war, in the Great War in Europe, his angel spoke to him on the battlefield many times, telling him what he had to do immediately if he wanted to live. But more of that in my later programs about this man who the diggers revered. Mac never saw his guardian angel, though he just heard the voice. On that morning at 4am, the boy, who had become a heavy drinker, swearer, and generally an evil sinner, had these words said to him, Go to Bundaberg. Go to Bundaberg and join the Salvation Army. The voice was crystal clear. It was like someone in the room was speaking to him. Did he go? No way. Well, not at first. On each of the next four nights, the angel spoke to him again, saying the same words. Mac finally gave in and, still wearing his bushy clothes, rode the 25 kilometres into town, into the Salvation Army Sunday service, and gave his life to Jesus. He was just 20 years old. In his book, Christians, Greg Sheridan says that one distinctive element of the Salvation Army is that it doesn't practice any sacraments, including baptism or communion, the Lord's Supper. It's not that it has anything against the sacraments, but doesn't believe they are necessary for salvation or for leading a Christian life. Greg interviewed Lynn Edge for his book, Lynn's the Salvation Army's Secretary for Mission for Australia. She told him that one reason why the Salvation Army doesn't do communion is that many of the early members were Reformed alcoholics, and it was thought wiser not to have altar wine around them. By never having any wine on their premises, the Salvation Army provides a safe place for alcoholics. My dad served with the Australian Imperial Forces in World War II, including in Darwin and the invasion of the Indonesian island of Moritai. Like every returned serviceman that I've ever met, they had tons of time for the salvos. There aren't many people who don't agree with the sentiment, God bless the salvos. During Mac's early years in the Salvation Army, he lived and worked rough with men living rough in the bush. In the book The Fountain of Public Prosperity by Stuart Piggin and Robert Linder, they called the type of men that he was working with the lone hand. The lone hand was the masculine ideal, not always how the actual men were, but how the men living in the city idealised the men of the bush and therefore celebrated. The one powerful and unique national type yet, produced in the new land, the Bushman. The Lone Hand drank copiously, gambled energetically, swore and had an eye for womanising. He lived in a world without a wife or family, but not without women. These men were part of what were called crews. They were all male. They were farm labourers, railway workers and road gangs, sailors, miners, shearing teams and dam workers. They were rough places to be. The crime rate was high and so was the consumption of alcohol and low attitudes of women. This was the sort of environment that the newly minted Salvation Army officer Mac went into. Ministries to these lone hands turned out to be good training for something that no one saw coming, but was. It prepared the men preaching the gospel to these lone hands for doing the harder work of wartime chaplains, if anything could prepare you for that in the great war that was to come preaching to the teams of men in the armed forces, the Anzacs. 
some of the things that Mac went through when he was bringing the word of God to the lone hands included having his camp burned out, losing his savings, being bashed with an iron bar, contracting typhoid fever and malaria. He also suffered from depression from time to time, working in these harsh conditions. On one occasion, the publican of a hotel that Mac was preaching in front of about the evils of liquor told him that unless he stopped, he would personally toss him into the nearby horse trough. If you remember from the beginning of this program that Mac didn't have the nickname Fighting Mac for nothing, there was nothing he loved more than a good scrap. So when Mac didn't do as the publican told him and stop preaching in front of the pub and move on, the publican set about making good his promise. Now I need to tell you that Mac was 190 centimetres tall, 6 foot 4, and weighed 100 kilograms or 15 stones, 10 and a half pounds. One Salvation Army officer said that he had a hand that was like a leg of mutton. So it was the publican who ended up in the horse trough and not Mac. These two became close friends and the publican became one of his best donors. Mac was a man of his word, a man of honour, character and integrity, words that many people today have no idea of. Once, after the First World War was over, he was reminded of a promise that he'd made years before to conduct the burial service of a soldier. He drove 260 kilometres to keep the promise. In another incident, he was on his way to speak at a rally about his wartime experiences. His car broke down 26 kilometres from the venue. There was no other way to get there. He wouldn't disappoint the people who had gathered to hear him. So he walked, getting there just a few minutes before he was due to speak. Then he delivered a spirited two-hour sermon. While he was preaching in Toowoomba, he met his future wife, Anne. They were married in June 1909. They had three sons and two daughters. Mac had become a successful evangelist by 1914. When World War I broke out, Mac was on a ship returning to Australia from a Salvation Army convention in England. He learnt about the war when his ship stopped at Gibraltar. The popular view was that the war would be over by Christmas, but Mac didn't see it that way. He foresaw that war as a long, dragged-out, bloody affair. When he reached Australia, he wrote to his territorial commander in the Salvation Army, volunteering his services as a military chaplain. On 25 September 1914, William, fighting Mac Mackenzie, was officially appointed chaplain to the Australian Expeditionary Force. He was the first official Salvation Army chaplain. He was 44 years old, an age when many men would be leaving the armed services, not joining them. He was about to become the man who the Anzacs most revered. That is something truly remarkable. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, CYKIA. I don't know what it's about, but listen in. 